to be disciplined in that. And that's what the book of Proverbs is about. It's the most practical book in the Old Testament for our lives today. And uh, it is great for vertical awareness for horizontal living. It's applicable every day of our lives, and it is good to uh, visit here uh, every day if we can. So it's a good place to be. And so no skill is perfected without discipline. And we've been going through, we've been using chapter 6, the passage that uh, Wes read for us, chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, is basically a launch pad where it declares there that God, there are six things God hates and seven which are an abomination to him. And then it lists seven items. And if you remember, he uses our physical body for the first five. He talks about haughty eyes or a prideful look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, and feet that run rapidly to evil. And this was a mnemonic device to help uh, the Israelites memorize his word. They could, a child could memorize this passage very well using their own body as a mnemonic device. And then there are two, to finish out uh, the series of seven, there are two antisocial actions, and we looked at the one last time, a false witness who utters lies. Uh, twice in this extended passage, he is concerned about being truthful in our speech. And finally, today, we come to those who spread strife in uh, that verse. It says, in one who spread strife among brothers. And so we come to that. And I was thinking of uh, an old joke about a man who wrote a letter to his neighbor. And it went something like this. Dear Frank, we've been neighbors for six tumultuous years. When you borrowed my garden tiller, you returned it in pieces. When I was sick, you blasted rap music out of your stereo into my bedroom window. And when your dog used my yard for a bathroom, you laughed. I could go on and on, but I'm certainly not one to hold grudges. So I am writing you this letter to tell you that your house is on fire. Cordially, cordially, Bob. You know, there's something about strife, difficulty with others that is part of life. I don't know that you can get through life without having some amount of strife. Now, you may may be here today and everything is very peaceful, and I hope it is that way. And yet, uh, this abomination before God's eyes, one who spreads strife among brothers. In fact, I like Bruce Waltke, Dr. Bruce Waltke, who's written a two-volume commentary on the book of uh, Proverbs. And he puts it this way when he translates the Hebrew, and Dr. Waltke certainly is a Hebrew scholar. And he said, one who unleashes conflicts. One who unleashes conflicts. That's Dr. Bruce Waltke's translation of the Hebrew that occurs here. And it is the culmination or the uh, brings this catalog of things that God hates to an end. Although, because of the grammar here, Uh, This is not an exhaustive list, as we know. We can go elsewhere in Scripture and see these things. And my whole point and purpose of using chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, is to look at what God values, what he loves, and what he hates. We often don't focus on God's hatred. Uh, We often equate hatred with our own emotional response to events in our lives. Uh, Whereas God has a pure hatred, a holy hatred, uh, which we have a hard time fathoming. But yet God in his infinite character, in his beauty, and his grace, and his mercy, also is a God of purity and holiness, and he cannot uh, stand sin. And so these are the things he's talking about. And so we look at the negative form, which are listed for us here, and then hopefully use that as a springboard to a positive form. So today, uh, we want to beware of those who unleash conflicts, one who spreads strife 
purposefully. And we see the, uh, this word strife occur in the book of Proverbs some 18 different times, that Hebrew word that's translated strife. Uh, and we see it here in this chapter, chapter 6, and uh, verse 14 and verse 19. Uh, notice the one, the wicked one, that he's describing in chapter 6, verse 12, is one who spreads strife. And here in our verse today, chapter 6, verse 19. But then in chapter 16, verse 28, is another statement. A perverse man spreads strife, and a slanderer separates intimate friends. And so these are all serve as instruction or warnings to us how to live correctly. Uh, verse, or chapter 11, verse 29. He who troubles his own house will inherit the wind, and a fool will be servant to the wise of heart. And, of course, that contrasts with wise living and foolish living. My favorite verse on all of this is chapter 26, verse 17, where it says, He who passes by and meddles in a quarrel not, like, not his own is like one who takes a dog by the ears. <laughs> if you are uh, of an age such as I am, I remember Lyndon Baines Johnson when he was president. And there's a famous photograph of LBJ lifting up his beagle by the ears. And every time I read this verse, I think of LBJ, uh, you know, and the, the point is, as though as meddling in quarrels that are not ours is like picking up basically a strange dog by the ears. I don't think the beagle bit LBJ, but I wouldn't have blamed it if it did, honestly. But uh, the controversial American author Gore Vidal uh, has the answer to all conflicts, and I think you will agree with him. As I did, as I read his quote, he had a clear and simple solution for dealing with interpersonal conflicts, with strife in life. He said, and I quote him, there is not one human problem that could not be solved if people would simply do as I advise. <laughs> there you go. So that's from Gore Vidal. So uh, God hates those, though, that spread strife. And here it talks about among brothers. And in the Hebrew, it's interesting. It's building from the lesser to the greater. And we have to understand that this book was essentially written for Israel initially. And this is what Solomon's concern was. And he's talking about the narrow definition among relatives. And he points to the worst sort of difficulty or sin. And that's blood relatives ranging from full-blooded brothers having conflicts and quarrels and intentionally spreading strife within the nuclear family. Also, from there, it spreads out to all kinsmen, the extended family, and then finally to the fellow countrymen, you know, as Israel, as the Jewish race. But for us in the church today, we think about us, we're called brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it's very applicable where he talks about spreading strife among the brethren or among uh, the brothers and sisters in Christ. So God, what does he value in positive form? Also in Proverbs, and you can jot these verses down and look at them later. Uh, he tells us in chapter 10, verse 12. I mean, there are many, many references to how to get along with people in the book of Proverbs. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Right away, we start getting a hint about how God views our relationship with one another. Uh, chapter 16, verse 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And uh, we could talk all day about being a peacemaker, not just a peacekeeper, but a peacemaker, an active role for believers in the world today. Uh, chapter 17, verse 9, he who covers a transgression seeks love. 
chapter 22, verse 10, where it's the, they're told, cast out the scoffer and contention will lead. Yes, strife and reproach will cease. There's something about those who are bent towards strife and scoffing that not to associate with them. Chapter 28, verse 25, he who is proud of heart stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will be prospered. And this idea of blessing in our lives as we are peacemakers. We could go on in the book of Proverbs, but I wanted today to turn to the New Testament. If you would take your Bibles, whether it's on paper or electronically, and turn to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. Or if you're electronically, swipe over to Ephesians chapter 4. And Ephesians chapter 4 uh, really is the pinnacle point of how to do church. It is the acme, if you will, the summit of how to be the church together. And the New Testament has a lot to say about how we relate to one another as well as relate to those outside of the church. And here is a very critical point in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. In verse 1, we are called to the very point of our existence. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. He said, therefore, in other words, in light of everything he said in chapters 1 through 3, which, by the way, is about our position, about his authority as an apostle, and for believers in Christ that we rest in Christ and his righteousness is ours. And then he starts talking about how to get along with one another. We are called back to the purpose of our existence. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And, of course, if you're familiar with the Apostle Paul, he uses that metaphor of walking as lifestyle, just like uh, we walk with hardly without even thinking. I'm thinking about it more because I trip more now. But uh, we think about walking, or we don't think about it much. It's just a lifestyle, and that's how the Christian is to live our walk, how we go through life. It's interesting in the Old Testament, beginning in, chapter, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, uh, the approach to God was, obey me and I will bless you. Obey me and I will bless you. Whereas the change in the New Testament is dramatic. For Israel, it was obey me and I will bless you. In the New Testament for the church, the call is I have blessed you, therefore obey me. Do you see the difference? It's all about our motive. It's all about motive. And we are called to a worthy walk. He makes this, he pleads to believers. Uh, he pleads for us, to implores us to walk in a manner that is honoring to him. I read about a man in uh, Katy, Texas, a businessman, and he needed a suit cleaned. He was going on a trip, and he needed it done quickly. Uh, he needed it done the same day. And so uh, he remembered a store with a huge sign out front. It said, one-hour dry cleaners. He drove out of his way, dropped off the suit. After filling out the tag, he told the clerk, okay, I'll be back in an hour. I need this for my flight to my business appointment. And she said, I can't get this back, you, back to you until Thursday. And he thought, he said, I, I thought you did dry cleaning in one hour. And she said, no, that's just the name of the store. <laughs> you know, and sometimes that's how the world views Christians. We have the name or the tag or the label or the sign as Christian, little Christ followers, but we fail to act like the one whose name we bear. We create confusion, disillusionment for yet for those who have not believed. So make sure that we have a worthy walk in this normal Christian life. 
And it tells us to walk with balance in our calling from position to practice, from position to practice. As a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've accepted him as your savior, you're assured of eternal life. You have a position in Christ where God the Father accepts you, and now let's live it out. Let's practice it. And so we go through this uh, passage, this great passage in Ephesians. The, the, The obvious question is, how do I do that? How do I do that to walk worthily? And then we see five marks in verses two in, in, in chapter four here. Look at the first mark in chapter two of verse four. With all humility, with all humility, uh, we must renounce self-centeredness. And for us, that is just almost impossible. We live in these bodies of flesh. We are self-centered in our flesh. Remember, the flesh is not redeemed yet. And so it's a constant uh, warfare in a sense that I want to please myself. I want to do what I want to do. I don't want to do what she wants to do. I want to do what I want to do. Okay? And so that's renouncing the self-centeredness. And that is probably, for most of us, uh, a moment-by-moment, hour-by-hour activity in our lives. That word humility means lowliness of mind, the humble recognition of the worth and value of other people the humble mind which was in Christ and led him to empty himself and become a servant. Humility is essential to unity. If you've ever noticed that, if you've been around the church a long enough time, you recognize that humility is essential to unity. Pride lurks behind all discord. Pride lurks behind all discord. We serve others. We promote harmony in this fellowship. I like D.L. Moody, Dwight Lyman Moody's quote, Uh, from a couple centuries ago now, or in the uh, 19th century, he wrote that Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody, and then he spent 40 years on the backside of the desert realizing he was a nobody, and then he spent the last 40 years of his life learning that God can do anything with a nobody. (laughs) And so there's lessons in humility. So the second mark is gentleness. Notice in verse 2, gentleness or meekness, Renouncing harshness and violence. Uh, This simply means we think of meekness as something being weakness, but it is not. Remember, Jesus Christ said he was one who is gentle and lowly of heart. Uh, Some of you may remember one of the greatest lion and big cat tamers, at least of our our lifetime, and uh, Gunther Gable Williams. Uh, He worked for Ringling Brothers, tamed lions and tigers. Uh, He was an amazing uh, lion handler. You know what? Uh, He did not destroy the power of the lion. Uh, He did not destroy the nature of the lion. The lion possessed the same ferocity, the energy, the power, the strength, the will, but it was under the control of its master that its quality was shown. The lion roars in defense of God, not in defense of me. So the lion within you should roar in defense of God, but not in defense of ourselves. How do you know if you're gentle and meek? Do you exercise self-control? Does your anger find its source in the dishonoring of your God? Do you respond to the word of God no matter what? Do you always make peace? Do you receive criticism just and unjust without retaliation? Do you have Christ-like attitude towards those who are not believers in Christ? Again, Jesus described himself as gentle and lowly in heart. Listen to this description of this meek and gentle Savior. 
He was the one who made the world. He flung the billion galaxies into space, the one who calls every star by name, the one who preserves the innumerable orbits in their courses, the one who weighs the mountains in a balance and the hills on a scale, the one who takes up the islands as a very small thing, the one who holds the waters in the hollows of his hand, the one whom the inhabitants of the earth are as grasshoppers. This one says, I am meek and lowly. That is our Savior. The third mark of this walk is a mark of patience. Notice in verse 2 where it says, with all humility, gentleness, and with patience, we must renounce the tyranny of our own agendas. Uh, Patience is what we need. There was a Quaker farmer who had a very stubborn mule. I think mules are stubborn by nature, but this one was exceedingly stubborn. And most farmers would get impatient and strike the mule to get him to go. But the Quaker's religion kept him from that. And one day he was talking to his mule and he said these words. Thou knowest I can't kick or hit thee because of my religion. Thou knowest I must be patient. But what thou don't knowest is that I can sell thee to an Episcopalian. (laughs) So patience is something you admire greatly in the driver behind you, but not in the one ahead of you, right? So that's an exercise there, to be long-tempered, long-suffering. The fourth mark is the mark of tolerance or forbearance, renouncing our rights. It is the product of patience, which is the product of gentleness, which is the product of humility. Notice the uh, progression as we go through this. In verse 2, the mark of selfless love. In verse 2, it calls us to bear with showing tolerance for one another in love. And that word love there is that Greek word agape love, which is the type of love Christ showed to us on the cross, that that, uh, love that is for the good of others, whatever the cost, and that's what Jesus Christ. So those are the five foundation stones of Christian unity. Humility results in gentleness, which gives birth to patience, which produces forbearance, resulting in selfless love. These mark our lifestyle, which bring us to the activity. Okay, those are the attitudes. Now how about the activity? Look at verse 3, and this gets to the crux of our issue back to Proverbs about those who spread strife. Verse 3 says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. To be diligent, to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Notice there that we don't need to pray for unity, that we do not need to manufacture unity. It is already given to us by the power of the spirit, which makes logical sense. Because if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And if I am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Therefore, the Spirit cannot be divided, and we are in unity. It is already developed for us by the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church. And therefore, we are to spare no effort in maintaining that unity, being diligent, endeavoring, making haste, a holy zeal demanding full dedication. Remember, unity is not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. One writer has said there are a lot of different kind of nuts in God's fruitcake. And we are an example of that. Okay? So here we are. Uh, One time uh, when I went to Indonesia with my missionary friend Ron Rissi, on our way back, uh, we were catching our flight in Jakarta, Indonesia. We were flying to San Francisco. 
on a 747, and the desk agent, when we checked in, said, would you like to move up to business class? And, of course, being good Christians, we said, oh, no, no, let somebody else do it. No, we didn't do that. We said, yes, we will go into business class, right up in the front nose of that airplane. And so as we sat in these wonderful chairs that reclined, and we had hot towels and real glassware and real food, and, I mean, it was, it was amazing. It was truly amazing for that long flight, especially not to be back in coach, back there where they have the oars, you know, and you're all working in a drumbeat. But we played a little game with one another. We looked around and tried to guess who else got bumped up into business class. You know, who else is not supposed to really be in here? And, uh, you know, there was, there was a, a good group of, like, businessmen and women, you know, dressed to the max, tea, you know, just really good looking, you know. You could tell that they had paid their way. But there were a few like us that didn't quite match up to business class on a 747. And there was this one guy who was padding around in his slippers, and you could tell he kept wearing his neck pillow when he walked around. And you could tell that he wasn't supposed to be there, uh, just like we weren't supposed to be there. And he sneezed so loudly the oxygen masks almost came out of the ceiling. Uh, but, you know, when they brought us linens for our, our table wear and everything, he tucked his in like a bib. And you don't do that in business class, you know. But, uh, you know, the, the church is like that, isn't it? We're all sitting in first class, in business class. And uh, there's obviously people who don't belong in church, in a sense. But the reality is when we look around, uh, none of us really belong. It's only because of what Jesus Christ has done. And so very quickly, uh, the seven elements that follow up this passage about unity and being diligent to maintain what God has already provided, there are seven elements here in verse 4. It's because of the Spirit, the Son, and the Father in verses 4 through 6. Look at the seven elements in verse 4. There is one body, okay? Talk about unity. No matter how many denominations there are, no matter how many differences we have on the secondary issues, if we're true believers, we are one body of Christ, the universal body of Christ. began at the day of Pentecost. It will consummate on the day of the rapture. But this is the church. There's one body. There's one spirit, as we talked before, this Holy Spirit who indwells us. There's one hope of the believer's calling, the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ, this hope that will be realized when we see him face to face. Then because of the Son, there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. There's one faith. There's not 2,500 different faiths. There is one faith. If it's the Christian faith, the true Christian faith, there's only one, and there's one baptism. It uh, doesn't matter the mode of baptism, but it's talking about the spirit baptism at the point we're saved. And then because of the Father, there is one God and Father. That's the seventh element we see here. He's over all believers, he's through all believers, and he is in all believers. We are indwelt by God himself. As a little exercise in closing, if you have a pen and uh, you can use a piece of paper, the bulletin, whatever you have, I'm just reminding you, all we ask you to do is bring your pen, your Bible, and your brain, okay? But I want you to take your pen or pencil and write a big circle, a big circle on the piece of paper you have. Or if you don't have a pen, if you don't have paper, I understand. But just do it in your head, okay? And uh, look at that circle and imagine that it's a piece of or a big pie, okay? I like pie. But uh, imagine that this pie represents 100% of the chaos in your life. 
As I said, I hope all of you are here today and there's no chaos, there's no relational difficulties, there's no problems in your life, okay? But just imagine with me, just play along, that this pie represents 100% of the difficulties, the difficult relationships, perhaps some severed relationships, perhaps marital problems, child-parent problems, parent-child problems, extended relatives, workplace problems, school problems, whatever it is. Imagine all of it is 100% in that piece of pie. Now, after you draw that circle, that represents all the chaos in your life. It's called the chaos pie. Uh, and so if you, if you want to draw a slice of that pie, which represents your responsibility for that chaos, okay, whether it's a broken relationship or problems at work or whatever, what is your responsibility? Just write whatever that piece of pie looks like. It may only be 10%, it may be 90%, whatever you think uh, that your part of the chaos or problem is. And put that piece of pie in there and just look at that, focus on that. You know, it's very easy to focus on our circumstances, it's very easy to focus on other people who are causing all the problems. It's very easy to do that, but we have no control over these other people other things. What we do have control over is our little piece of pie, whether it's the 10% or the 20%, whatever it is. So here's what I want you to do this week. As you experience relational conflict, whether it's this week or maybe a month from now, I hope you remember this, whether it's at work, whether it's at home with your friends, your neighborhood, any kind of conflict at all, whether it's small or large, stop and think about your own piece of the pie. That's your ownership of that whole pie of chaos. And ask yourself these questions. What is in my slice of the pie? Have I taken responsibility for my life? Really, am I enjoying the blame game, blaming others? Or is God allowing me to confront what I can deal with? We dare not ignore our piece of the pie. What am I responsible ultimately for? Any of these relationships, in any relationship, when there's discord, there is a solution. And it goes back to those elements, that elements of humility, gentleness, tolerance, selfless love, and about the fact that we are diligent to preserve the unity the Holy Spirit has given us. Let me pray this morning. Heavenly Father.